0: What happens in school libraries? What do they offer pupils? The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, August 22, 2017. I'm Anne-Derek Gaillot. Today on The Dispatch, Tim Donnelly reports on a controversy involving vegan cheese.
1: It also quickly came to light that Bozuka tests on, you know, their pharmaceuticals on animals.
0: And Gabby Del Valle reviews The H-Spot, Jill Filipovich's first book.
2: As an all-encompassing text, it didn't really teach me anything new. Here's The Dispatch.
0: Culture. Vegan cheese has gone mainstream. In its eight-year history, the plant-based cheese company, Dea has soared in popularity.
3: Hi, everyone. My name's Greg Blake, and this is Andre Crocher, and we're the co-founders of Dea Foods. Dea Foods is a group of foodies who are really passionate about making Delicious, no-compromise plant-based food products.
0: But recently the company was purchased by a Japanese pharmaceutical brand for $325 million. The problem? The brand conducts testing on animals. So the sale has left vegan Daya fans feeling betrayed. Writer Tim Donnelly is here with the story. Hey Tim.
1: Hi Ann, how you doing?
0: Good. Um, how did you come across this Daya story?
1: Well, I um, had seen it on some of the um, vegan news sites that I check. Um, I kind of have a couple on my rotation that I just keep an eye on. So Deo was sold to a Japanese pharmaceutical company called Atsuka, and they explained the sale as a way to help grow their brand and become kind of this dominant worldwide force in plant-based food making.
3: In seeking a partner... We came across a Japanese company called Otsuka. Otsuka has a real alignment with the values of DEA. We believe that we're very fortunate to have found a partner that we can collaborate with whose fundamental values align so well with DEA.
1: Aside from the oddity of having a pharmaceutical brand by a you know of food company, it also quickly came to light that Otsuka tests on you know their pharmaceuticals on animals, which is you know, of course, standard for a pharmaceutical company, and I think even required by law in some places. Um, but that kind of bristled a lot of fans of the brand uh, right away because it had, until that point, been a vegan company, and animal testing is just kind of very icky for anyone to wrap their head around um, who doesn't want to eat animals or use them for as food machines. So right after that news broke, people kind of uh, declared online, um, people declared that they were going to start a boycott, or we're starting online petitions to get out, you know, kind of negate the sale, which is a shame because they are everywhere. You know, for it's kind of the case of finally there was this vegan cheese brand that was available in, you know, in a Kroger in Ohio instead of just like at a Whole Foods, you know, in New York City. And now it's kind of like crossed this line of, oh, maybe it's too big and we don't want to support them anymore because they have they don't have the same values that we do anymore.
0: Could you tell me about the different... Um, the different perspectives you heard from people you interviewed about the sale and the ethical quandary that came with it?
1: You know, in theory, it, it's, the, it's the idea of making something that's vegan and mass-market available to more people across the world is, is the goal, right? You want to get to the point where there are more options for people who maybe want to switch to a plant-based lifestyle. When we thought about the
3: future of Daya, We came to the conclusion that Daya should be and can be a global leader in the plant-based lifestyle. We realized that we would
1: need a partner in order to achieve that goal. You know, giving people an alternative uh, that's easy to use and kind of tastes like what they're used to is, in theory, a good thing. So a lot of people are kind of split on this.
0: Um, in your article, you say there might be a grass ceiling for vegan products, so to speak, and Dea smashed right into it. Can you talk about that tension between veganism and capitalism and the grass ceiling?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think this idea of the grass ceiling um, you know, is something I came up with to kind of describe the idea of it, the bigger you get, the more of an impact you're going to make on the, on the earth and the more compromises you have to make. And that's just that's just the nature of doing business. You know, you can be the most environmentally minded food company in the world, but you're still, you know, creating factories that that produce fossil fuels, you're still, or that that guzzle fossil fuels. You're still, you know, putting things on trucks that contribute to climate change. You're still, um, you know, you might um, sell to a larger company. Like, you know, I think Whole Foods is an example where they got really big and then sold to Amazon. And now a lot of people are, you know people are always kind of on the fence about the business ethics of Whole Foods. And I think a lot of i've I've heard from some friends that they're going to stop shopping there now because they don't believe in the business ethics of Amazon for sure. So I think with vegan products, it's particularly tricky too, because you have a, your customer base is people who are by nature tuned into these things, right? That's what they're that's what they want to do. They want to be informed about where their things are where their food is coming from. They want to be informed about you know what's in their food, what impact does it have. So you've got to be better at it, basically. You've got to do it better and um, because otherwise people will call you on it. And I think that's what's what's happening now.
0: So people are against this sale because the company, Otsuka, does testing on animals. But aren't there a lot of things to be gained from animal testing and it's kind of unavoidable in some industries?
1: Yeah, for sure. It is very – it's unavoidable and, you know, uh, I'm sure there's not a vegan alive who can tell you that they – are able to completely cut out the benefits of animal testing from their lives. You know, it's just in everything. It's so many pharmaceuticals that we use, so many life-saving things. So, yeah, it's 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 a it's a tricky. I mean, it's a hard debate to have. It's you know, no one wants to come out and say like, I think we should make it harder to get life-saving drugs or whatnot. But there are alternatives that are coming up now that um, you know that make it either safer and human, or or you know, maybe lab tests that don't involve like actually taking a live creature and putting it through all these things. So it's one of those things where there's not a good answer for it right now. But much like vegan cheese itself, the options are getting better as time goes on. So I believe that we as a as a, as a race, as a human race, can figure this out somewhere down the line.
0: I like your optimism, Tim. Thanks, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Culture. Gabby Del Valle. Hi, Anne. You just reviewed Jill Filipovich's first book, The H Spot The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. Who is she and what's the deal with this book?
2: Jill Filipovich is a feminist journalist and author. She currently lives in Kenya and she wrote this book about how U.S. public policy as it relates to women and the feminist movement more generally has focused on women achieving equality with men, but not necessarily on public policy that centers women's happiness. And she traveled all over the country and spoke to a couple dozen women about what a happiness-centered public policy could look like. And she posed this really interesting question, which is, what could feminists achieve if instead of fighting for equality, they imagine this new world that they built by and for women and then took the steps to build it in a way that makes women happy. She writes, what would we make if we had all the tools? What do we want? Does the book answer it well? Um, She spends most of the book, instead of answering this question, just talking about like statistics that point out how bad women have it in the United States. And she's not wrong. She goes into rape and sexual assault, the gender wage gap, all of these things that feminists know to be true, and it's not until the very end of the book that she proposes solutions, and the solutions that she proposes are really just existing democratic policy that she says, hey, this would be really good, and it would help women. Well,
0: can you tell me a bit about the women Filipovich spoke to for the book?
2: So she traveled all over the country and spoke to women from a lot of different backgrounds. One is a woman who was in a really unhappy marriage and left her husband and found happiness living with another woman one is a successful consultant who's in a feminist marriage with her husband who's also a consultant and they're trying to figure out how to make marriage equitable when only one of them is doing the physical part of having and caring for a child through like breastfeeding. And then there's one woman, <laughs> Janet, who is present in a lot of a lot of different chapters. Janet is very poor. She has, I believe, four children. She's been in an abusive relationship. She's been homeless, and her dream is to open up a shelter for other victims of domestic violence, and she faces, more than any other woman in this book, like several structural and interpersonal hurdles that are preventing her from achieving happiness, but Janet is very much an outlier. She's the only low-income person who's really included in this book, and Filipovich has a lot of statistics about For example, how women of color make less than white women who make less money than white men, but there's only one Janet, and there's a lot of other, like, wealthy or middle-class women who she spoke to. So what that raises is, like, why didn't you seek out more Janets? There are more Janets in the United States than there are privileged, wealthy women.
0: Do you have an idea of why she didn't reach out to more women who live on low incomes?
2: I'm not sure if she didn't reach out to them or if she just didn't find people to speak to. But in the conclusion, she does say that the book is not exhaustive and it wasn't intended to be exhaustive. But again, like it's your if you're writing about this, then you should be not only seeking these people out, but getting them into your book.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So do you think I should read this book? I think... I learned a lot of, like, historical and anecdotal examples. I learned about, for example, these kind of dormitories in countries in the global south where women will kind of lease out their wombs to people who, like, as surrogate mothers. Like, I learned a lot of, like, small interesting things that were kind of sprinkled throughout, but as an all-encompassing text, it didn't really teach me anything new, if that makes sense. But if you are looking for, like, an intro to feminism type of thing, then this is a pretty good book to read. I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Just it's a starting point, definitely.
0: Cool. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Ann. That's it for The Dispatch. You can find us here every Monday through Thursday morning in your favorite podcast app or at theoutline.com podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Anderek I.O. More stories tomorrow.